ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be the ETF man himself, uh, certainly in the pantheon of ETF nerds, Todd Rosenbluth, head of ETF and mutual fund research at CFRA. And as I always like to do whenever Todd's on the podcast, we're going to bat around a bunch of ETF topics, everything from record ETF flows this year to new ETF launches. We'll talk thematic ETFs, Bitcoin ETFs. Todd's just one of those people I can pretty much toss any ETF question at, and he'll have an informed take. Now, not necessarily a take uh, I always agree with, but always insightful, and few are as well-schooled on ETFs as Todd. So look forward to that conversation. Should be a lot of fun. Also joining me this week will be Frank Holmes, CEO of U.S. Global Investors, who, of course, they're behind the U.S. Global Jets ETF, and you may recall this was one of the biggest ETF stories last year. So ETF or assets in this ETF grew from about 35 million at the beginning of March 2020 to over 3 billion by the end of the year. And assets actually spiked all the way up to four and a half billion dollars earlier this year. But the story here was pretty straightforward, right? It was a lot of retail traders piling into this ETF, betting on a recovery in airlines once the pandemic subsided. Uh, this was also around the time Warren Buffett was actually exiting airline stocks, which set up sort of an interesting little experiment to see who would be right, uh, retail traders or Warren Buffett. So we'll get an update from Frank on how things have been going on that front. I'm also very interested to hear his thoughts on where we're at in the economic recovery, uh, whether he's concerned about this Delta variant. Uh, we'll talk labor shortages, fuel prices, really get a nice snapshot of how healthy the global airline uh, industry is. And then if we have time, uh, Frank is also extremely well-versed in gold and crypto. So we may pivot and touch on that as well. Now to start this week, I have Tom Hendrickson on the line with me from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Tom is president of ETF Trends and ETF Database, and we are going to look at the top 10 ETFs in terms of year-over-year -year engagement on their platform. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, thanks for joining me this week. Nate, good morning. Great to be here. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Refreshed after a, a nice vacation last week. Yeah, I have to say I was uh, happy to live a little bit vicariously through you. It looks like you had a good time. You guys were out in, in Colorado, did some hiking, saw some sights, some, some fun time with the family. It was amazing. Yeah, out in Colorado, uh, got several big hikes in, did a little whitewater rafting, paddleboarding. Uh, weather was perfect. I, I just, uh, it was such a great break from the, uh, the everyday grind, and the kids had a blast. So, uh, no, like I said, definitely came back very refreshed. Yeah, great to hear, Nate. It, it, it's it's funny when you do that, you come back and, and you're ready to dive in in a way that without that, it's it's a little bit a uh, little bit more of a grind. So really, was happy to see that on Twitter, and I know you're pretty avid on there. So uh, good for you. All right. So look, last time you were on the podcast, we visited about how 
you sit in a unique position because you have this plethora of data on what financial advisors are doing when they go online, obviously when they visit ETF Trends and ETF Database. And you explained how that really offers some interesting insights into ETFs. And so this week, I've got to tell you, I absolutely love this. You've put together a list of the top 10 ETFs in terms of year-over-year engagement. Uh, in other words, which ETFs saw the biggest spike in, in traffic from people visiting your two websites over the past 12 months? Now, I have the list in hand, and we're going to go through this. But before we do that, do you want to just speak a little bit to this, uh, to this data? Maybe add some context in terms of exactly what we're looking at. Yeah, happy to, Nate. And and so it's funny, you know, the the listicles or top ten lists are are uh, as old as the internet is. And so this may be on on the very far end of the nerdy element, really digging into what tickers financial advisors are most interested in, and then how that how that's changed year over year. So twenty one over twenty. And obviously, there's a heck of a lot that's gone on in the world, which is informing how advisors are doing their research, where they're looking. And ultimately, a lot of that's going to be driven, and I think we're going to have a hearty conversation around uh, the conversations that ultimately are fueling the advisor-client conversations and, and getting into some of the larger themes and then maybe even a meta theme as it relates to some of these areas that advisors are interested in. So what I did was I looked at you know, the entire universe of, of US-listed ETF tickers. And, and so they all reside on the ETF Trends and ETF Database platform. We get a lot of traffic there from the advisor community. You could imagine, Nate, when an advisor is doing their research, they might start with more of a thematic idea and then drill in, drill in, drill in, ultimately to a product selection process where they're at the ticker level. And so that's the data we're looking at. I threw out anything where there was, you know, large base effects, um, mm -hmm. you know, where there wasn't very much traffic last year or it was a new ticker symbol. So we're looking at a statistically relevant um, sampling here where, you know, what the advisors are doing year, year over year really does give an indication into how and where and what they're researching has changed. So that's, that's a little bit about the data and, and maybe we can dive in. Yeah, so let, let's get to the list and I'm gonna do this the old David Letterman reverse countdown style, <laughs> starting with number 10. And also for the sake of time, let's maybe quickly burn through numbers 10 through six here. You can offer a little bit of color and then I thought we'd spend more time on the top five. So number 10 on the list, uh, again, most year-over-year -year engagement growth at ETF Trends and ETF Database is the Siren NASDAQ NextGen Economy ETF, ticker BLCN, one of the blockchain ETFs, which, you know, I would say probably not too surprising given what Bitcoin and crypto have done over the past year, right? Bitcoin is up, what, 280%. And of course, we don't have a Bitcoin ETF yet, which I'm not going to get started on that <laughs> this week. But you look at BLCN, it's returned nearly 50% over the past year. Any quick comments on that one? Yeah, no, Nate, and we talked a little bit about this last time I was on. You know, advisor interest in, in this space is, is heating up, and, you know, we're going to see this theme play out in the top 10. So maybe I'll save some further commentary until we get a little bit deeper into the list. All right, number nine on the list is the iShares MSCI USA Value Factor ETF, ticker VLUE, which this has taken in four and a half billion dollars in assets this year, uh, nearly seven billion over the past year. Uh, of course, there was a lot of focus on the value factor earlier this year, though that's faded a, a bit recently, I would say. This ETF is up uh, about 44% over the past year, which for reference, the S&P 500 is up about 39%. Um, now, number eight on the list is another iShares ETF, the iShares S&P GSCI Commodity Index Trust, ticker GSG, which I, I think there's clearly a tie into value and cyclicals and sort of this bet on the economic recovery, which we can talk about that uh, later. But that ETF is up nearly 50% uh, over the past year. And then number seven on the list, another commodity ETF, but I, I've got to tell you, Tom, this one's interesting to me. So ticker NRGU, the Microsectors U.S. Big Oil Index three times leverage ETF, I, I'm curious, what do you make of this? Like, I was a little surprised seeing a leverage ETF show up here. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting, Nate. One of the themes throughout is that there, the, the ETFs within this list do skew to have performed quite well in the last year. 
And, and I think one of the things that we find when we're in you know, constant communication with the advisor community is a big part of their job is the steward of their client's portfolio. And that means putting them in the right things and also making sure that they're not going too deep into the wrong things. And so you could imagine, um, you know, as, as some more aggressive clients may be calling their advisor and talking about ways to play a recovery and, and sort of driven by some of the headlines and, and things opening back up, you know, my theory here is that ultimately advisors are making sure that they understand the space, they know, you know, they know the pitfalls of it, there's probably some demand on the client side, and if there's a very small sliver of that aggressive sort of play money part of the portfolio that's not even near the core, you know, there's probably a little bit of that that drips in here so that the advisor can talk um, intelligently about wh where to stick to the knitting and then also not to get, you know, too infatuated with any of the shiny things. You know, that's a great point. I mean, I always harp on the importance of ETF education, making sure you understand what you're investing in, especially with some of the uh, more esoteric products, which this fits into that. So I, I think you're right. It's probably people doing some due diligence on this product, um, which, by the way, on the performance side, that thing's up like 85% uh, year to date. So year to date, yeah. Yeah, yeah which is why uh, I'm sure advisors are hearing from clients on it. Okay, number six on the list is the Vanek Vector Semiconductor ETF, ticker SMH. Of course, uh, we, we've all heard about the chip shortages, right? And I would say this is another ETF clearly tied to the economic recovery and the supply chain constraints that we've seen. Uh, this is up, what, 60% plus over the past year, again, compared to about 40% for the S&P 500. Any quick thoughts on that one? Yeah, no, I, I think that you're exactly right. This is the third biggest ETF here, you know, with about five and a half billion dollars. It's funny, mate, we've got within this list, the range you mentioned, you mentioned the iShares uh, value ETF bumping up against $16 billion. And then the smallest ETF in the list is, is a little bit south of $100 million. We've got quite the range here in size. And so the semis play, to your point, you know, really does speak to, I think what we'll touch on in a little bit is, is, is a bit of the meta theme that's playing out through where this research is happening. And, and, and maybe we'll save that for the top five. Yeah, no, it's perfect. So you're foreshadowing exactly where we're heading. Um, let's get to those top five ETFs. Again, these are the top five ETFs in terms of year-over-year -year engagement growth at uh, ETF Trends and ETF Database. And, and let me just do this. I'll give the ETF, and then you can offer some color commentary on each of these. So number five is PDBC, the Invesco Optimum Yield Diversified Commodity Strategy, which the, the only thing I'll mention here, not to steal your thunder, is this thing has taken in close to $2.5 billion in assets this year, which might surprise some people. It's also up nearly 50% over the past year. Uh, what, what do you think about that one? Yeah, and it's crested $6 billion total. So it, it's interesting, Nate. I'm sure, uh, you know, we're going back and forth on this. And, and one of the things is, you know, a color-coded some of the themes that popped and, and we're going to get into from five, four and three into some of the repetition of the theme. So we're, we're, look, we're seeing it in the commodity space. Obviously, advisors are interested in not only the recovery play and, and some of the demand that's going to be put on on some of these commodities to make, you know, all the things that that need to be built happen, but also the inflation, um, you know, it's a good point theme com coming in here. And remember, we talked about that last month where we picked up on advisors' interest in inflation even earlier than it became sort of mainstream narrative. Going all the way back to last summer, advisors were, were looking at some of the proxies of, of how to hedge out some of the inflation tail risk or, or some of that um, you know, risk that maybe inflation was going to be more deeply rooted, you know, larger than people thought for longer. And, and so I think that there's probably an element of that in, in play here as it relates to this Invesco commodities product. Might be the single biggest debate in the markets right now. Are we going to have inflation or is this transitory? <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Um, okay, number four is the Amplify Transformational Data Sharing ETF, ticker BLOK, uh, the largest of the blockchain ETFs. Now, we mentioned BLCN earlier. I guess anything else you would add to, to what we mentioned uh, previously? Well, you know, the only thing I'd add, obviously, the you know, first mover product here, over a billion dollars in this product. You know, the, the debate around just how um, core of a holding, you know, crypto, uh, the blockchain technologies, and, and maybe even DeFi, as we're starting to see some more filings in that space, are going to be as it relates to uh, you know, satellite positions within 
it advises uh, broader portfolio construction context. You know, is that going to be the one to three percent? You know, you've got Frank Holmes coming on. You know, after me and after Todd. That's that's really you know talk about debates within the market. I think there's a lot of people placing bets there, and ultimately looking for ex- for some exposure, and, and you can't get it as as you've already referenced through a you know a, a peer play in an, in an ETF wrapper, uh, and so so BLLK is probably a pretty darn good proxy as it relates to advisors who want to um, get up the learning curve there, get some exposure, and, and then we'll see how that plays out over the coming you know, months, quarters, and years. I feel like you're trying to bait me into getting uh, fired up over the lack of a Bitcoin ETF. I'm not going to take the bait uh, this week, Tom. <laughs> but one, one thing well, I will say here is, uh, well, actually two things. First of all, BLOK is up about 100% over the past year. And uh, again, performance driving some of the interest here. But the other thing is you mentioned uh, DeFi and, and the filing. So we saw Goldman Sachs file for this DeFi and blockchain ETF yesterday. And, the, you know, there are several blockchain ETF filings in the hopper. Of course, there are a number of blockchain ETFs already on the market. The one thing I'm really interested to watch here is how many of these ETFs can make it. Because I think these ETFs yeah. are being launched as workarounds uh, because these ETF issuers know that uh, end investors want exposure to the price of Bitcoin or the, the crypto ecosystem. They can't get it through, again, a Bitcoin ETF. So they're creating these these workaround products. And there's a lot of them out there. So I, I think that's going to be an interesting story to watch as the, the rest of the year unfolds. Okay, number three on the list is the Invesco Dynamics Semiconductors ETF, ticker PSI, another chip ETF. Um, anything you would add here to what we mentioned earlier with uh, SMH? I, I guess I'm somewhat surprised this one ranked higher than SMH, just given that the Vanek one is uh, so much bigger. They've also performed about the same, up more than, what, 60% over the past year. Yeah, you're right, Nate. It, it, so here we've got another repeated theme, the one of semis. We touched on, on what's driving some of that. Um, you're right. So the, the growth here, the year-over-year growth, and that's how this list was sorted, is higher for PSI. Uh, despite being, you know, a little bit more than one tenth the size, um, you know, the Vanek product, but it's it, it, the um, the growth is higher, but the actual gross engagement is, is lower. So okay, that's a good point on the Vanek product. Yeah, but it but it results in um, you know a little bit higher year over year growth. So maybe people uh, looking at this as, as as a bit of a secondary option. Okay, number two, XRT, the Spider S and P Retail ETF. Uh, from my perspective, I guess that that seems like a pretty easy story, right? Just a yeah, return of the no, consumer. It, yeah, exactly, Nate. And, and that's that's what's happening here. And, and so all of the um, you know pent up demand that we've been reading about, or, or the pushed off demand as it related to purchasing, you know, obviously people have uh, adapted and adopted different methodologies there. But there's probably a lot of things that have been pushed out into these out quarters, and ultimately. Um, you know, the advisory community is looking at this as, as a play as it relates to reopening and, and ultimately people, you know, just feeling more confident about the economy go forward and uh, a way to get exposure to that. And that ETF is up like 110 percent over the past year. Again, yeah. the, this theme of, of outperformers and the ETF world showing up on this list. OK. Yeah, nearly, nearly 50 percent year to date. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, number one on the list in terms of year-over-year engagement growth. I feel like we need a drum roll or something here. Uh, B-Dry, the Breakwave Dry Bulk Shipping ETF, which this has been one of the top-performing ETFs overall, uh, up like 280% over the past year. Um, I guess, do you think that's the story here? Just again, performance? Yeah, I, I do, Nate, and also the reopening and, and how to play that. And, and then I would say that, you know, as it related to, you know, we touched on it with the, the levered oil product earlier, um, a couple of things I'd say is that this may be um, one of those areas that requires more research from the advisor community for, for them to communicate it, you know, intelligently, accurately, um, and concisely to their clients. So there's a bit there's a bit more education that probably has to, to be had here because the product's not, you know, uh, you know, pure beta or, or that simple. There's also an element of where does that fit in the portfolio. So that's always a conversation that we have, you know, with the advisor community of, of where a product fits in the portfolio. Obviously, like people are, you know, relatively fully invested. If you're going to take something out, where does something fit back in? And then the other element here is it's, an ex- it's a complicated product and it's a bit expensive as well. 
And so that's probably going to drive some of the engagement to understand why that is and ultimately, um, you know, unpacking sort of the under the hood elements of this product. One thing I was a little surprised in looking at this ETF is that it's uh, total assets are a little over 80 million, which surprised me just given the performance that it's seen over the past year. I, I guess the things that you just described, you think that's why maybe um, advisors haven't put more money into this ETF at this point? I just, again, with that kind of performance, would have expected more inflows. Yeah, so Nate, so 280% one-year performance and 240% year-to-date. So like most of that one-year performance has happened within the last, you know, almost seven months or so. So, you know, it's, it's a really good question. I, I'm not sure that I have a, a great opinion on, on that um, specific part of that, but obviously it relates to, you know, how the performance has been and then the fact that it, it does require some, some education because when you lift up the hood on this product, like, you know, we, you and I talked off-air um, There's some things to unpack for sure. So be dry, number one. I'm excited to look at this again, maybe, you know, towards the end of the year and see what changes uh, there have been. But, Tom, fun chat this week. I just love this stuff where we can marry data to narratives and and sort of read the tea leaves as well. It's just right up my alley. Uh, Thank you for joining me this week. Nate, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Have a great show. That was Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. Looking to invest in the forefront of change impacting our lives? Take a look at biotechnology and semiconductor companies. Why? Because biotechnology companies recently developed effective vaccines for COVID-19, and semiconductor firms created computer chips that are used across today's growing industries. Close to 20 years ago, NASDAQ developed two indexes to help investors track biotechnology and semiconductor companies. Learn more at Invesco.com IBBQ or Invesco.com SOXQ. IBBQ and SOXQ are NASDAQ listed. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-983-0903 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. My next guest is Todd Rosenbluth, head of ETF and mutual fund research at CFRA, a leading independent provider of investment research and analysis. Todd spearheads all of their ETF coverage there, and he's now on the line with me from New York. Todd, always a pleasure. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Nate. Great to be back with you. Okay, we are going to jump right in here, and I want to start with ETF flows because we're right up against a calendar year record. Uh, as a matter of fact, I saw Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas tweeted this morning that with the Bloomberg data, um, that annual record has now been eclipsed. And, of course, we're only at the end of July. It's clearly been a monster year for ETF so far. Um, I'd love to hear sort of your perspective here. You know, obviously, we've had the supportive backdrop of the financial markets. I would say that's probably the biggest driver. But what do you make of the uh, inflows this year? Well, it's been in tremendous demand. I actually thought the intro music would have been from like the 1980s, Sweet 16 Bar Mitzvahs, Weddings of Celebrate Good Times. <laughs> um, because $500 billion in, in just under seven months, which is the data that we at CFRA have as well, it's just uh, amazing to see. We've seen institutional investors that entered the market using ETFs probably for the in many cases for the first time in 2020 were active in the first half of 2021. We've seen advisors continue to shift towards ETF strategies. You know, Vanguard has already matched what was a crazy $200 billion of net inflows in this seven-month period. 
We've seen Invesco. We've seen Schwab. We've seen Global X have more money pouring into their ETFs thus far than all of 2020. So it's not just been one firm. It's not just been one style. And I guess lastly, I would just note is this is a completely different market than we saw in, in 2020, a rotation towards value. Uh, over growth, so ETFs like VTV or more equally weighted version of the S&P 500 with RSP from Invesco, and then demand for thematic ETFs uh, has continued to accelerate with a shifting number of themes uh, that, that fit the current moment as opposed to the prior one. So it's been a tremendous year so far, and we've got five months to go. Well, in those last five months that we have ahead of us, I mean, any predictions in terms of where we end up on on flows? And again, it's obviously market dependent, but let's just say we have a relatively normal market. I mean, what do you think happens here? Well, I I think we could hit the $7 trillion mark by the end of the year. Um, We probably will see a a slowdown in the pace of flows. July has been slower than prior months. The summer tends to be, and certainly when there's market volatility and then a recovery, not a recovery, but an acceleration is common in the fourth quarter. Uh, so we could see another $300 billion of money flowing in to ETFs. And then if the market uh, rallies, as it tends to do in the fourth quarter, that could, that could get us there as well. So I think we're going to keep kicking off milestones. It may not happen $7 trillion by the end of December. Uh, it, it could fall to January or February, but I, I think the snowball continues to, to get larger in the ETF space. Yeah, and we're currently sitting at $6.6 trillion, right around there. And you mentioned milestones. Right. I, I love giving these stats, so bear with me uh, here. So I looked, SPY, of course, the first ETF that launched in January of 1993. Well, ETFs as a whole in the U.S. did not hit $1 trillion until December 2010. They then hit $2 trillion in December 2014, $3 trillion in July 2017, and then listen to this. So $4 trillion in July 2019, $5 trillion in November 2020, and $6 trillion in April 2021. And let's just say we hit $7 trillion you know, towards the end of the year or January next year. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. And, and yes, I get that each trillion is easier, right? Because as ETF assets increase, you know, it makes that, that growth easier. But still pretty amazing, however you slice it. Oh, it, certainly, because there's what's happening is we're seeing investors that are getting exposure to using ETFs as the structure of choice. They remain comfortable. They tell other people about it. It's a spiral effect of institutional investors see other institutional investors having a good experience. They then take a chance at, at ETFs, and people continue to do so. And I think, obviously, the conversion from mutual funds to ETFs is a sign that the asset management industry is, is further embracing ETFs uh, as opposed to the old-school mutual funds of of our parents' day. A hundred percent. I mean, what do we see? 30 billion in mutual fund ETF conversions from DFA and certainly more to come. Um, Okay, Todd. So in addition to the record flows, we're also seeing this acceleration in ETF launches this year. Um, I I know you recently wrote a a piece on this. I mean, high level, can you offer some perspective on this as well? And then I do want to get your take on a few specific new ETFs. Sure. So there were just over 200 ETFs and ETNs that launched in the first half of 2021, that's an acceleration of what we've seen in prior years, obviously 2020 being impacted in part by COVID. Uh, We've seen more than 20 uh, in July. In the first half, two thirds of these products are some form of active management. Either they're the defined outcome suite of products that we and others consider active management for the use of options or the semi-transparent products like Fidelity offers and Tiro Price offers, or the fully transparent products that we've seen uh, have success. And both newer entrants into the marketplace and more established firms entering in with the ETF space. So if I can just touch on a couple of examples yeah, in the active space. Uh, so Franklin, uh, which Franklin Templeton is, has a lot of low cost, Oriented products, they launched Franklin Exponential Data ETF, XDAT. It's still an extremely small ETF, but what caught my eye, or catches our eye at CFRA, is this is run by a well-established and strong-performing manager of, of one of their mutual funds. So they've taken their in-house expertise 
to it. Uh, and then a second product, which maybe we're going to get to, but is INFL, which is an inflation beneficiary ETF from Horizon Kinetics, their first ETF. And it gathered over $600 million uh, in the first six months of life, but not all at once, but but drip by drip uh, of new money and, and just cranking their way on it are two of the interesting active ones. And if I can touch on an index one, because I know you have a list of other ones to touch on. I recently wrote about Triple QA, which is a ProShares ETF. It's tied to the NASDAQ 100, but with a momentum twist to this large cap growth strategy, and it's uh, 21 stocks that have the highest momentum characteristics. Sometimes that includes the the FANG-oriented stocks, and sometimes it doesn't. So it currently owns Facebook and Alphabet, but it doesn't own Netflix and Google and Microsoft, among others. So it's just an interesting product that I think is a another evolution even within the index space. No, I always love how you unearth some of these these ETFs that may fly under the radar of other investors. Um, you mentioned INFL. That is one that jumped out to me. I, I mentioned this on Twitter. I mean, to me, that's probably the breakout hit of the year this this year so far, just given that this was a new issuer and seeing how much success it's had and, and clearly timing some of the concerns around in inflation perfectly. Um, two, two stats I want to mention briefly, and then I, I have a couple other ETFs, as you mentioned, I do want to ask you about. But um, in your research piece, you noted that 76 asset fund families have launched a product in the first half of 2021. That just jumped off the page at me. And then we're right now right at about 2,600 ETFs overall. Pretty remarkable, you know, how quickly the space is growing. Um, in, in terms of the new ETFs that, that you know, have caught my attention, um, let, let me give you a few others here. So VUSB, the Vanguard Ultra Short Bond ETF, that's already over a billion dollars in assets, just launched in April. ARKX, which I know everybody was all over this launch, that's the uh, ARK Space Exploration and Innovation ETF. But you know, I look, this is already over 600 million, just launched at the end of March. And to me, this shows the power of Kathy Wood, because you look at the uh, Procure Space ETF UFO, which I, I love Andrew Channon, and they were first to market, which I think they should get a lot of credit for. That launched in April of 2019, but it only has 125 million. And a lot of those assets have come since ARC first announced their space ETF. So what, what's interesting to me here is, again, just that that gravitational pull, no pun intended here, of, of Kathy Wood. And then I'll give you one more, uh, which I don't think is going to surprise you, uh, SPBC. So that's the Simplify U.S. Equity plus GBTC. Of course, that's a Grayscale Bitcoin Trust uh, ETF. That launched in May and is already over $100 million, which to me, I think that shows the power of investors wanting Bitcoin exposure. I was actually visiting earlier with uh, ETF Trends' Tom Hendrickson and, and going through a list of the top 10 ETFs in terms of engagement on their platform, and two of them were blockchain ETFs. To me, that's showing that investors, they, they, want, they want exposure to the space. They can't get it through a pure Bitcoin ETF, and so they're looking at some of these other workaround products. But um, I guess any quick thoughts on, on any or all of those ETFs? Well, I'll, I'll just highlight to me what is obvious is that investors don't care about how long an ETF has been around. If they get Good the point. investment concept, they understand what's inside it, the fees, they're with an asset manager that they're comfortable with. The three-year anniversary that has existed for mutual funds for years is just not relevant in the ETF space, and, and you're citing perfect examples. You know, Vanguard, an ultra-short bond ETF, that's a pretty simple concept <laughs> to understand. And if you work with Vanguard already, uh, and it's 10 basis points, that's easy to determine that that makes sense. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take the bait with, with the Bitcoin-related products. I knew we it. Can, we, maybe, <laughs> we can maybe check that off the box. And I asked on Twitter how early we'd get the word Bitcoin would come out of your mouth. In the interview, so what well, we're at uh, 10:35 Eastern time, mine uh, 9:35 yours. I think we're 15 minutes into the conversation, so ahead of my anticipation. But this is just a creative way of getting exposure to Bitcoin, and it's a smart way of doing it. Um, whether or not I believe or you believe people should have it within their portfolio, it's a managed way of having exposure. It's a tax-efficient way of having exposure. They do the work. They, being Simplify, does it for you. It makes a lot of sense for somebody who wants exposure to it through an ETF wrapper. And I don't think, uh, getting ahead of myself, I don't think we're going to see an ETF uh, for Bitcoin directly in 2021. So this is the best way of getting exposure to it.
Well, let's talk more about that. I'm going to take your bait from from my bait, and I didn't take Tom Hendrickson's bait earlier <laughs> talking about Bitcoin ETFs. But look, we, we saw another filing for a Bitcoin ETF last week from GlobalX. I believe we're now up to uh, 13 known filings. Uh, and I say known because it's possible that somebody like Grayscale or or Bitwise, that, that they have filed something behind the scenes. Uh, certainly not a 19B4, but it's possible they, they've uh, put in their initial filing. Um, you mentioned not seeing one this year. I, I would agree with that. I mean, I've grown much more pessimistic as time has gone on now that we've seen Gensler show his hands a little bit. I, I mean, Tom, where do you think we're at in, in this? I mean, what do you think the SEC needs to see? Do you think there is uh, a, a a bigger force here at play in terms of the U.S. government not wanting to implicitly endorse Bitcoin and, and therefore not allowing the SEC to approve a Bitcoin ETF? I mean, any any thoughts you would offer on this topic? So my insight is based on what the SEC is saying. So what they're saying is they have concerns about fraud, and they're saying they have concerns about some form of Bitcoin in an ETF structure that cannot be closed when there's uh, unexpected demand, uh, both high and low. And that's certainly going to happen. Uh, there, there's people lining up to buy the product uh, outside an Apple store before them even announcing that there's a new product, if I can butcher an analogy. Um, so I think it's, it's what's encouraging is that these are some well-established asset managers like GlobalX and VanEck and WisdomTree and ARC that are not just jumping in with an ETF, but this is part of their broader lineup. And this is an extension of what they're doing with some of the blockchain-related products or digital assets. Each of those firms has some connection to it. I, I just don't know what moves the needle for the SEC. I, I think if you, I, it's it's hard to disprove the negative that fraud <laughs> is not being uh, done, or that these products will not face a, a run on the bank, so to speak, when people look to exit. I, I don't know that that's true, but it's hard for them to disprove it. So I'm skeptical that we're going to see one under the current administration's leadership of the SEC, but but hopefully I'll be surprised. I, I'd rather talk about a live product than a theoretical one. What's interesting to me, and I'll, I'll leave it at this, is that if you look at some of the comments from um, people who are closely tied to the ETF space, so I'll give you an example, like Gray King over at Osprey, he comes to mind. Um, the, the partners over at Wilshire Phoenix, if you look at their comments, they are very pessimistic. And in fact, I saw something from the Wilshire Phoenix camp that they don't think there, 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 there would be or there could be a, a Bitcoin ETF until like 2023. And so when I see that from people who have worked directly with the SEC, it is hard to be uh, optimistic. Okay, Todd, with well, our remaining time here, you were mentioning on these new launches that you don't need a three-year track record. And obviously that gets into a topic that's near and dear to your heart, which is, hey, look, make sure you're doing your due diligence, doing your homework on ETFs, looking under the hood. And I, I want to talk about a piece you wrote a few weeks ago that was titled, Is Your ETF Using a New Rulebook? And to me, the gist here is that if you look at index-based ETFs, um, some of them change their benchmarks more often than investors may realize. And I actually talked about this on last week's podcast with uh, e ETF Trends' Dave Nodig. We discussed ICLN, the iShares Global Clean Energy uh, ETF. They changed indexes. But, but here's my question to you. I mean, isn't this just active management? I know people say all investing decisions are active, and I, I think there's truth to that. But investors that are, are buying into these index-based ETFs and then see those indexes change, and they may not be aware of it. I, I just, I, I guess I have two concerns. I mean, one, is this active? And then two, I mean, how often do investors realize these indexes are changing? So I think infrequently that people realize it, or it's, it's very rare that people understand what's happening. So uh, an asset manager will update their prospectus. They might put out a press release, but they might not put out a press release that they're making changes, and then they make the change a, a few months later. So we were seeing a number of them happening in, in the first half of 2021, enough to pull, go into our database to see that there were 267 index changes between January 2016 and June of 2021. So let me make that easier. More than 50 each year. Um, and that includes obviously half the year not being done for 2021. It depends upon which product we're talking about. So I wrote about recently how iShares is changing the index behind MUB, which is their national muni ETF, and SUB, which is their short-term national muni ETF. 
And what they're doing is basically adding a, a, some, you know, they're largely doubling the number of municipal bonds that the manager can sample from with this new index. Assuming that they make this change once, as opposed to every couple of years, then that's okay as long as you're not solely relying on the track record because the track record is less meaningful when they've changed the index. There's other ones, typically when it's a smaller ETF, uh, where they make a radical change. So a couple that come to mind within that recent period of time, State Street uh, took a crossover fixed income product that invested in investment grade and high yield bonds and turned it into SPHY to make a cheap version of JNK. It's now only high yield bonds. It's now cheaper than everybody else. It's a way of using an existing product and gathering additional assets. That's not the same product. That's okay. It's not the same product, but you certainly can't rely on past performance to use it. So I don't want to go through every example out there. It's just, it's important to have an understanding of what is inside the portfolio today and put that performance record in perspective and don't rely too much on it when you're doing your analysis. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I I feel like it's a reminder that you can't just set it and and forget it with index-based ETFs because it is possible things change over time. And um, Todd, just a couple minutes uh, left here, sort of on a related note, I've seen a couple of really good uh, articles lately. So I saw one from Matt Krantz over at Investors.com, and then there was one from uh, Jessica Ferringer over at ETF.com. And both had to do with, uh, again, your favorite topic, knowing what's inside an ETF. And they specifically talked about the growing popularity of thematic ETFs and how those products might require even greater due diligence by investors. And and, and look, I know you always say, uh, look under the hood, right? But I, I thought it'd be good. Can you just offer some real tangible action items for investors who are looking at thematic ETFs? Like, like how do you approach this space from a CFR rating perspective? So, and thanks for that. So we at CFRA, what we do, we look at the holdings, we look at the performance record, sentiment, and cost. For a thematic ETF, we treat the same as everything else. So we, we have an opinion on individual stocks from evaluation and risk perspective that may or may not be connected to the theme. And if it owns stocks we like, that's a good thing. If it owns stocks we don't like, that's less of a good thing. Um, and, and the fund will get rated lower. So let me just pick an example. I know ARC-X, the space exploration ETF, I didn't touch on when you, when you talked about it. It owns DEER. You know, I, I'll probably find a way to connect, and I'm sure Kathy Wood could find a way to connect DEER to space exploration. It's not my opinion whether or not it fits in appropriately in the space ETF. We have a buy recommendation on DEER from a construction and an agricultural equipment perspective. So we like ARC-X ownership of the stock. Is it appropriate in a space-themed ETF? Are you stretching the boundaries? That's important for an investor to make on their own. We're not putting our, our thumb on the scale to be able to say that. So we think you should, importantly, with thematic ETFs, you can't just buy the largest. You can't just buy the cheapest. You can't just buy the best performer. You need to look at it and make your own decision as to do you like what's inside the portfolio and, and do they own things that you think either make sense or often companies that are small caps you never heard of. But when you do a little bit of homework, you see, ah, they're the leading company within this cybersecurity segment or, or, or that space exploration segment. That's the homework investors need to do. We're hoping to help them, but they've got to do a lot of the legwork on their own. All right, Todd, so I'm going to recap our conversation here. ETF growth and, and momentum is accelerating. ETF innovation is alive and well. There's not going to be a Bitcoin ETF. Uh, you don't need a three-year track record for an ETF to invest in it. And, and look under the hood. Those are the uh, the Todd Rosenbluth uh, words of wisdom this week. Always enjoy visiting. Uh, for listeners, go follow Todd on Twitter, at Todd CFRA. Thanks for joining me this week, Todd. Thanks, Nate. Enjoyed it. That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of ETF and mutual fund research at CFRA.
I'm now joined by Frank Holmes, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Global Investors, who currently offers two ETFs, about $3.5 billion in assets, including the U.S. Global Jets ETF, ticker Jets, one of the best ticker symbols out there, and of course, our primary topic this week. Though I should note, Frank is a gold expert, and he currently serves as executive chairman of Hive, which was the first publicly traded company mining both Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, on, on an industrial scale. And he's now on the line with me from San Antonio. Frank, thank you for joining me this week. It's great to be with you, Nate. All right. So, look, you joined me. It was a little over a year ago. And as I'm sure you recall, that was right after Jets went from about 35 million in assets at the beginning of March to about 600 million when we chatted. Now, of course, that ended up being a relatively small milestone because the ETF continued to grow all the way to around four and a half billion dollars. But uh, if, if you remember, the conversation we had back at that time was whether this would work out well for investors who were piling into the ETF. This was also around the time that Warren Buffett and uh, Berkshire had divested uh, of their position in the major airline stocks. Just talk about the performance we've seen over the past year or so from this space. Well, there's no doubt, you know, Warren Buffett was so drastically wrong, uh, just like he was on Amazon. And uh, JetBlue announced that they made $64 million in the second quarter. Uh, and, and I think what's really important for the public is to recognize what took place with COVID was, uh, was an incredible increase in price discovery. And price discovery is so important with the minnows in an ecosystem because that attracts all the other fish, uh, all the other traders, hedge fund managers, uh, trend followers, uh, re uh, price reversal followers. It's amazing to see that the price discovery mechanism, and we had jet string around $12, and, and the data now shows at that time you could get the data on how many jet shareholders, but 25,000 of them uh, from Robinhood bought jets between 12 and $13, and then it soared to 28 So, yes, I tip my hat to uh, the Robinhood gang. Frank, we'll look ahead in a moment, but I'm curious, can you offer a sense as to how healthy the global airline industry is right now? Like, are there some metrics you can point to, perhaps comparing current levels of travel with pre-pandemic levels? Because I remember when we visited last May, air traffic was down like 90 to 95 percent. Well, it's really important, a data point that started being published last year and during March by the TSA is how many people they clear today. And pre-COVID, it was 2.7 million people. Two million Americans flew domestically. 700,000 were inbound from Europe, Latin America, and Asia. Um, that fell to less than 90,000 on April the 15th of, of 2020. Uh, and, and it's recently gone back up to about 2 million people. So we can see the strong rebound of our domestic travel uh, and, and I think that that is highly correlated to more and more people getting vaccinated. And what we also have seen is that as the TSA number is very volatile, uh, which comes out every day, but you can do moving averages to it. And as it stays above that 50-day uh, moving average, you can see all of a sudden the airlines as a whole pick up uh, in, in price action. And so this has become a very important sentiment tool for quant funds. Do you have any good metrics on business travel, what, whether that's coming back? Because I, I know there's no way to, to measure this aspect, but I'm curious how companies like Zoom might be impacting air travel, especially moving forward. I'm wondering what percentage of people are now perfectly comfortable, let's say, only conducting business meetings via Zoom or perhaps just attending conferences online. And if that could permanently take a chunk out of air travel demand, any thoughts on, on that? I don't know if it's really going to take that much of a dent uh, out of it going forward. I think the world's just going to be much more, um, it'll be embedded in their, in their DNA of doing business. Uh, it'll probably say that if I do a business uh, travel, that'll have to be much more meaningful because I could always Zoom it. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it'll, that, that's what's going to happen. But business travel, Delta expects it to be back up by November, uh, and it's slowly growing. 
uh, leaders like uh, Jimmy Dimon from J.P. Morgan said that if people can go to restaurants, they can come back to the office, um, and that's the expectations. Same thing with Goldman Sachs. have told people that um, you, you have to come back to the office. And, and, and so I think there's going to be a, a, a good trend from high-income, high-producing uh, business people to be flying again. But I think that, uh, and for certain conferences, I've been to a couple of uh, investment conferences and, and uh, crypto conferences, uh, which have been packed in Miami's uh, as destinations. What about the cost side of the equation for some of the airlines? I know Delta recently reported earnings in, in, in American, but I'm curious, I mean, like if you look at the labor shortages we've seen in other industries, I'm curious, has that been an issue for the airlines? And is that driving up the, 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 wage, uh, the wages on, on that end? What about fuel prices? And how is that playing into to ticket prices? Can you, can you offer some insight there? Well, the biggest headwind you always be were is vaccines, and the nice, the data point comes out that 95% of those infected recently by the Delta variant have not been vaccinated. Uh, 95%. So uh, it, it just shows the significance of getting vaccinated because the Delta variant uh, spreads much more rapidly. Uh, but I, I think the in answering the question, uh, what's interesting is that there were not massive layoffs in the airline industry. The, the, the economic support was brilliant because previous cycles, government screwed up and allowed big layoffs, apply for unemployment insurance, but then when they try to turn the economy around, um, the onboarding for the airlines industry is much more detailed and much greater so that would just delays getting the economy turning back up. So they turn around and, and, and give out $25 billion, which basically is a form of unemployment insurance. And it kept all the stewardesses, everyone at the airplanes in training, all the pilots kept in training. Everybody was like in work mode, but in skilled training. So as the economy has turned and more people are flying, this is very bullish. Um, something I write about every month is PMI, Purchasing Manufacturers Index. PMI is hit an all-time level of 72. This is very, very bullish for the airline industry. That means business is picking up. Uh, and, and so you understand that, basically, that there's lots of orders for manufacturing. Uh, that usually drives commodity demand. Uh, so domestically, you're going to see trains being very busy moving uh, uh, coal around, or not coal, but in particular copper, metals, for manufacturing electric motors. Uh, we're going to see this, this boom is very real. I've never seen it, Nate, at 72, the PMI, and it's strongly correlated to strong commodity demand and economic uh, uh, business. So I, I think that um, the wind is at our sail. The fuel energy, the, the, the biggest issue is fuel shortage of the, of the quality of the fuel that American Airlines has cited. Um, so I think, A, the government did a great job of giving money directly to the airlines. And the reason for that is because the airlines industry is about 9% of GDP. It's a very, it employs so many people in such a significant part of the economy. So they were all kept as vital services alive and ready to turn on a dime. Uh, and so we're not going to get those labor shortages like you're seeing at hotels and restaurants. Okay, so in terms of the ETF itself, Jets, uh, do, do you want to talk about the exposure here? I know there were some slight changes made to its index. I think that was in September of last year. Uh, why was that done? And again, just talk about the underlying exposure in the ETF right now. Well, it's very quant-driven. And, uh, and what we saw in that process was the inflows were coming in faster than the airlines uh, were actually uh, rising at one point. So we end up becoming too much of a position in some of these companies. So we have to expand the number of airlines and just expand that universe for liquidity reasons. Now that's how we re had to redo it. And, and the, the most recent repositioning in has a total of 50 names. And we increased the global exposure because they've lagged the U.S., but we cut their, the, the amount. So we used to have 20 names at 1% each would all be foreign, and now we've gone to 40 names at a half a percent. So we get, and they're still being cherry-picked by those that have the strongest fundamentals on a relative basis. What's really interesting, Nate, is how many new airlines have come out. You know, this is a, during COVID. 
uh, Breeze, the, the guy that created JetBlue and also WestJet in Canada, created a new tourist uh, airline called Breeze. Uh, that's the, probably the biggest and most renowned one. But in Europe, there's several new airlines that have come out, uh, in particular driving tourism. We've seen the major airlines reposition from your neck of the woods flying south. There are so many more new paths flying from northern states to southern states. Uh, and that is really about tourism. Uh, and even Southwest are flying from, from Phoenix to uh, Cabo St. Lucas. And with some of those new airlines, are those now in the ETF? No, they're not. Um, except for your Frontier is. Frontier okay. went public, and it, it's, it's actually showing up in the ETF because um, it, it had a strong liquidity. Uh, well, you know, one of the key components is making sure we have the liquidity. And the other real key component was make sure how we're managing the taxes, uh, which you can't do in mutual funds, which you can do in ETFs, which you're very aware of. Uh, uh, when we go to rebalance each quarter, that we're doing everything to maximize being tax efficient uh, and, and getting capital. So recently, uh, Goldman Sachs was, was there to put up capital, and we repositioned the rebalances of half a billion dollars of rebalancing and making sure you're doing the tax lots so that uh, you're being very tax efficient. Frank, just a couple of minutes left here before I let you go. I, I have to ask you ab- about Bitcoin. I'm going to pivot here. Uh, but, but I guess first, uh, in terms of Hive, for listeners who are unfamiliar, do you want to explain what Hive does? And, and then I'll ask you about Bitcoin. So just after launching just as an ETF, I went out to launch a Bitcoin ETF. And I quickly realized the SEC, uh, spending $1,000 an hour legal bills, it wasn't going to go anywhere because of their fears, and rightfully so, of anti-money laundering, that some hacker gets paid in Bitcoin and shows up on the New York Stock Exchange. I went to Canada, it was the same event. But I did a lot of research, and what really shocked me was that going to a crypto event where people spend a fortune to attend, the keynote speaker was the CEO of Fidelity. She never, Abigail Johnson never speaks at investment conferences. Here she was the keynote speaker, and I said, something big is happening. And with that, I had the opportunity to be on the ground floor of the creation of the first crypto mining company with immediate cash flow and revenue, mining Ethereum in Iceland. And then we branched out to expand that footprint in uh, Sweden, and now it's also Bitcoin mining. We became the first ESG-focused, green-only uh, crypto mining company, the first crypto mining company. And, for, and nicely, t- 10 days ago, we got listed on NASDAQ. Okay, so I have to ask you, any quick thoughts on, on Bitcoin right now? You know, Bitcoin was up to, what, 65000 earlier this year, then fell down below 30000 We've now seen a, a nice rally here the last few days. Uh, wh- wh- what do you think about Bitcoin right now? Well, I, I think it, the G7 countries are slow at getting their own digital money out. China's ahead of them. So we have this sort of global competition and, and you can see that every time this has taken place, they start knocking Bitcoin's bad, Bitcoin's bad. And, and Robinhood's going public, and you find the data points is that 14% of their profits came from uh, people trading uh, crypto. So uh, that is, it's, a, it's a big global trend, and I don't think they can stop it. They're trying to slow it down where they come up with their own digital money, uh, and it's just a matter of time. So digital Crypto is just uh, an important concept that Bitcoin validates what they call triple entry accounting. The world grew from the, from the Medici's and Phoenicians with double entry accounting, which allowed for global trade. And now we're going to go to triple entry accounting, uh, which Bitcoin validates can be done. So it is in a major trend. Uh, and, I, and I think that when you get news like J.P. Morgan all of a sudden going to announce it retail, and it jumps from 32000 to 38000 yesterday, Bitcoin. Um, we're going to continue to see more and more data points like this come out, which is very bullish for the overall industry. Um, and, and so I remain that uh, to tell all investors the DNA of volatility of Bitcoin Ethereum is the same as Tesla, is six times the S&P 500 and six times the price of gold. So if you go into that asset class, 2% is alternative asset class. We have at Hive over 100,000 shareholders in 80 countries, and many of them because we hold, we hold on to our, these virgin Bitcoin and Ethereum. When we mine them, we don't sell them. We don't put them into cyberspace, so we put them on our balance sheet. And so we have become a proxy for, like a, there's no ETF, so Hive has become that proxy. 
Well, Frank, always enjoy connecting. Really appreciate your perspective. And going back to Jets, uh, congratulations on all the success there. I mean, it really has been a true ETF success story. Love seeing that. But thank you for joining me. Thank you, and happy investing. That was Frank Holmes, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Global Investors. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank our sponsors, NASDAQ and Invesco. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I have two tremendous guests lined up. I'll be joined by Bruce Bond, co-founder and CEO of Innovator ETFs. He's going to go in-depth on their lineup of defined outcome ETFs. And then I will have a wide-ranging ETF conversation with Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas. Until then, have a great week, everyone.